or um, if you have notes, uh, that would be great because we're going to go through some scripture. Uh, Hebrews 6, 7 to 12. Hebrews 6, 7 to 12. Here is what the author of Hebrews uh, said. For the earth which drinks the, the rain that often comes upon it and uh, bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But it, if it bears thorns and um, briars, it is rejected and, to, uh, and near to be cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we have confidence of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and the labor of your love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. Amen? All right. Well, first of all, I guess you guys should be thankful today. It's only four or five pages, not eight pages like last week or so. And um, Katrina was not able to proofread this one, so heads up, you know, this is an Egyptian guy writing English. So if you see anything unusual, just <laughs> be aware. So um, this is week 24 uh, in the book of Hebrews, and we have arrived to almost half of chapter 6. And again, the book of Hebrews is written to uh, Jewish people who became Christian. And after they became Christian, they wanted to go back to Judaism and abandon Christ. So the author of Hebrews wrote that book to them pretty much to tell them never to consider going back to Judaism and abandoning Christ. Almost the first 10 chapters, he's arguing the superiority of Christ, how Jesus is far more superior than the Old Testament and the, all the elements of the Old Testament. And again, the idea here is if Jesus is superior, then why leave what is superior to go to what is inferior? And then towards chapter 10, verse 18, all the way till the end of the book, he's pretty much giving them practical application on how they can live their life. It seems from the context of the book that the people were facing a lot of persecution. That's why they were considering leaving Christ and going back to Judaism. So he's giving them a lot of practical ways. How should they live their lives in facing persecution and uh, conduct themselves as Christian? So throughout this book, the author of Hebrews gave five stern warnings with tough words to the readers to warn them very, very much never to consider going back to Judaism. And the passage that we're in today is actually part of the third warning that he gave his readers, which started in chapter 5, verse 11, and going to last for the most part all the way till the end of chapter 6, which we're going to close next week. So that is almost a chapter in a third or something to that effect that is just a warning telling them never to consider going back to Judaism. Last week, we stopped at verses uh, 4 to 6. And let me just try to remind us of what he had just told them so we can know where we're picking up today. 
He told them what, what we read last week. He said this. He said, it is impossible. Look at this. It is impossible for those who once enlightened and have tasted the good word of God and have tasted the heavenly gifts and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the ages to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance because they again crucify for themselves the Son of God and make a public spectacle for them, right? We said last week that this is probably one of the toughest and hardest passages in the whole Bible because it has a lot of implication as far as your salvation and my salvation. Is he talking about genuine believers who might lose their salvation and apostatize and leave Christ to the point of no redemption? It appears like he's talking this way. Or he's talking about people who are not really genuinely Christian. And we closed it last week just to remind us so we can pick it up by saying there is no easy answer to that question. That text is pretty hard. And no matter what you stand on that text, you're going to find counter arguments to it. But we say that probably the least problematic uh, interpretation is this. If you are genuinely Christian, if you have been born again by the Spirit of God, then you don't have to be anxious about your eternity. You don't have to be worried if down the road you're going to lose your salvation. You need to be secure in the promises of God. And the author of Hebrews, going to see next week, precisely emphasize that, that we have the promises of God that can never change, and we need to rest secure in that. But the flip side of this is, uh, is this. Perseverance is the mark of the saints. You guys are with me? Let's say this together. This is important. Perseverance is the mark of the saints. In other words, if you say that you're a Christian right now when everything is fine and dandy, 10 years down the road you start facing persecution and your Christian walk is difficult and you start questioning if you really should continue walking with Jesus or not, then... This is, you probably were not even a Christian in the first place. Amen? We talked about the parable of the sower last week, how the sower went out and he sowed seed on good soil, on good ground, and on rocky ground. We said they both start growing, and in the early stages, you cannot tell a difference between the plants in the good ground and the one in the rocky ground, right? It's when the hard times come. It's when troubles come. It's when persecution come. That's when you know which plant has seed and which plant doesn't have a seed. Amen? And that's pretty much the idea here. There's a lot of people who appear to have experienced God in a tangible, real, life-transforming way. But we will not know that till persecution come or trouble come and see if their commitment that they have made to Christ that they're going to live for him or even die for him, no matter what, is actually genuine or it is not genuine. Amen? Just to remind us, and we're going to move on to the passage this week. The reason I'm going through last week a lot is because it's foundational for this week. So I want to make sure we're on the same page. I told you last week that when two people get married, they stand before God in the church and say, you know, I'm committing myself to you for richer or poorer, for sick or for health, whatever the case is, till death do us part. You will never know if this commitment is real unless 10, 20, uh, 25, 30 years down the road, they really actually have made it, right? When people stick through thick and sin, that's when you know that their commitment was real, that they, when they said it, they meant it. 
But if they start waiting for 10 years, 15 years down the road, and it's like, you know, yeah, I meant it back then, but I don't want to live like this anymore. That's when you know that their commitment that they made in the first place was not really genuine. They might have meant it when things were fine and dandy, but when things start getting tough, they start wavering in the commitment that they made. You guys are with me? And that's pretty much the same idea of salvation. When you make a commitment to follow Jesus, you're committing yourself to follow him no matter what, even if you have to bear your cross every single day and die for him, this is the commitment that he's expecting from you. We will not know if you actually meant it unless persecution come. You guys are with me? Or tough times come. Or you have a chance to compromise and now you can choose to compromise or not to compromise. And that's where we left it last week. And we pick here this week from verse 7 to verse 12. And he starts by saying this, For the earth that, that drinks the rain that comes upon it, if it produces fruit, it pr produces herb to those who cultivate it, it's blessed. And if it produces thorns, it is cursed, right? So the author of Hebrews here is using an analogy, an illustration, to explain again what he has just told his readers in verses 4 and 6, right? He told them in verse 4 and 6, if you know God and you backslide, it is impossible for you to come back to Christianity. From every pers perspective and practical way, you will never come back, you abandon Jesus. To explain what that means more, now he's using this analogy. As he's saying, we have a piece of land and this land is being cultivated by a farmer and God is pouring out his rain upon this land now if this land produces fruit herbs and vegetables then it's blessed by God and the one who cultivated will gain its fruit but if it produces thorns and briars then this land has been cursed and it is not and actually it says here that it end will be burned it's going to be destroyed at the very end so the very word, first word here, for, he's explaining to us how this analogy is absolutely linked to what he just told us. He's explaining more and abounding more. And he's telling us here this, that the land, the rain comes on it, it's being cultivated, and in the very early stages of both lands, whether it produces herb or it, whether it produces thorns, you cannot tell the difference, right? It's only at the end, it's only when the harvest comes, it's only way down the road, month and month down the road, when you know if this land is actually going to be blessed because it produces fruit and herb, or it is cursed because it has not produced that, but it produced thorns. You guys are with me? And apply that to what he just said. He's saying this, you are the same way. You have been tasted and seen all the goodness of God. You have seen the miraculous part of God. You have tasted the word of God. So in the early stages, you seem and appear like everybody else who's genuinely born again by the Spirit of God. Amen? But we'll know for sure if you actually meant that commitment down the road. If you produce apostasy and leave Christ, then you're like the land that produced thorns and you will be burned, right? If you produce perseverance, then you're like the land that produces herbs and you will be blessed by God. You guys are with me? That is pretty much the point of the analogy here. And the words that he used in verse 8, if it produces thorns and briars, these two words was actually mentioned before one time. If anybody knows, that would be good. It's actually in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam fell in sin and disobeyed God, God told him that the land will produce to him thorns and 
briars. So these two things usually associated with the curse of disobeying God. You guys are with me? Adam disobeyed God as a sign that God is cursed what he has done, the land is producing thorns and briars. And that's what the author of Hebrews is looking at here. He's saying, if you're going to act in disobedience, and if you're going to refuse to obey the voice of God and choose apostasy over perseverance, then you're going to be like Adam when he was under curse from God because he disobeyed God. You guys are with me? And then he said that this land, its end will be burned. Its end will be fire. And the author of Hebrews throughout the book multiple times tell us about the end of those who don't know God and how they're going to be tormented in fire. A couple of other incidents, uh, chapter 10, chapter 12. So that is a common theme that he used throughout the book to tell us that there is an eternal judgment and punishment that is waiting for them, for those who ultimately reject God. Now, this illustration that he just used here it appears to me that it enforces the conclusion that we just agreed on last week, right? That salvation is a coin that has two faces. On one side, you can be secure in the promises of God once you commit your life to Christ that you're saved. You don't have to worry about your eternal salvation. You don't have to question if you're ever going to end up in heaven or not. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is perseverance is the mark of the saints, right? It is a, the mark that you truly have been genuinely born again of the Spirit of God is that when you endure, is that when, per, when persecution comes, you'll say, you know what? I already made a commitment to Jesus that I will live for him no matter what. I told him already when I committed my life to him that if I die for him, I die for him. This is what I meant when I said Jesus become my Lord and my Savior. Amen? If you meant that commitment when you became a Christian, then it doesn't matter what comes your way. You already resolved to die for him if you have to, right? So perseverance is the mark of those who are already saints. Let me just refresh our minds with a couple of verses that we used from 1 John again to, to emphasize the same point. 1 John 3, 9 says this, whoever has been born of God, whoever has been born of God does not sin, does not live the life of sin. For his seed, God's seed, the Holy Spirit, remains in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. What does that say? That says that if you're truly born again of the Spirit of God, then the Holy Spirit, that new nature in you, will remain, the seed of God will remain, and you cannot, can never, you are incapable of going back to living the life of sin. You guys are with me? If you are capable of going back to live the life of sin, then guess what? You are not genuinely born again of God. Amen? You guys are with me? 1 John 2.19, I just want to remind you of this verse again talks about those who abandoned the faith, and it says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Think about this. They went out from us, but they were not really part of us. You guys are with me? They were for a while, but the fact that they left, the fact that they went out and abandoned Christ tells us that they were not genuinely part of us. Amen? says here, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of 
us. You guys are with me? It seems that John's saying the same idea here. If you abandon Christ, then you were not really, did not really mean the commitment that you have made to Christ when you said that you're going to receive him as Lord and Savior. Amen? And that's what the point here that the author of Hebrews is telling us. Again, in the beginning stages, you're going to act like everybody who has been genuinely born again of God. But when persecution comes down the road, when harvest comes, that's when we know if you meant the commitment or it was just empty words, right? If, if you produce apostasy, then your commitment to Christ was nothing but empty words when you said, I'm going to follow you, right? And if you produced perseverance, then you really meant what you said and you're truly genuinely born again of God. Amen? Now let's draw the parallel between verse 7 and 8 versus verses uh, 4 and 6 because it's almost saying the exact same thing. I want to show you this. In verse 7 and 8 says this, the rain often come upon this land. God pours out his blessings symbolized by the rain on the land. Whether the land produces thorns or whether the land produces herb, all the land received the rain from God. You guys are with me? And that's precisely very similar what he said in verse 4 and 6, that those who even abandon Christ will experience God in the same way like those who genuinely know Christ. He said, remember, those who once enlightened have tasted the heavenly gifts and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the ages to come. So that is, in the analogy of verse 7 and 8, uh, what he was saying in verses 4 and 6. You guys are with me? And then he said in verse 7 and 8, if this land produces thorns, that is similar to what he just said in verses 4 and 6, if they fall away. You guys are with me? He's just pretty much using an illustration to enforce his point. And he's, there's the resemblance between these four verses. It says in verses 7 and 8, it is rejected if the land produces thorns and it is rejected and need to be cursed and its end is that it will be burned. He's saying that exact same thing in verses 4 and 6. It is impossible for those who know God to that point, who experience God's reign and blessing to that point, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to public shame. Amen? Do you guys see how verse 7 and 8 is pretty much an explanation uh, of what he just said and told us in verses 4 and verse 6? You guys, verses 4, 5, and 6. You guys are with me? The author of Hebrews, again, I'm just going to read this very simple. The author of here seems to be arguing that in spite of the experience they had with God, I don't know if it's that genuine or not. I cannot answer that question. I told you last week. But in spite of whatever experience they had with God, if persecution would result in apostasy, then their commitment to follow Christ was nothing but empty words. This is, for me, the best explanation to, do you lose your salvation? Do you not lose your salvation as far as that passage in Hebrew is concerned? It, it is not a problem-free understanding, but it's probably the least problematic understanding. You guys are with me? So um, this is verses four and uh, seven, uh, verses seven and eight. Now let's move on to verse nine, and then he tells them this: "By beloved, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner." Now, after he said 
after he warned them in verse 4 and 6 and used that analogy of verses 7 and 8, now his tone is changing a little bit. And now he's uh, being uh, more kind to them instead of the harsh words that he just has delivered to them. Amen? He called them here, but beloved, dear friends. This is the one and only time that the author of Hebrews used that word in addressing his readers. It's obviously full of gentleness, and it makes sense after that harsh words he just gave them that he would use a kind word to bring them back in. Amen? And he said, we remain confident. We are confident of better things concerning you. He's saying, yes, I'm giving you this analogy. I'm telling you that those who know Jesus to that effect and abandon him, it will be impossible for them that they can be renewed back into salvation. But as far as you're concerned, we have better hopes for you. We know better things about you. Amen? And in spite of the fact that he told them earlier that they have become sluggish in their hearing, right? And they have, you know, many of them probably start leaving the church in, in so many ways and leave the gathering of the saints. And he warned them about this later on. But he said, in spite of this spiritual immaturity that you have, remember, he told them you need milk and not solid food. And in spite of all of that, and when it comes to your salvation, I can be confident and certain that you are genuinely born again by the Spirit of God. Amen? My beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Now, this is good. The word better things in Greek has a definition article before it. So it literally goes like this. We are confident of the better things concerning you. And that takes us back to that analogy that he just told us in verses 7 and 8. He has only two camps. He has the camp of the land that produces herbs and the camp of the land that produces thorns. And now when he said we are confident of the better things, and he used a definition article, that means he's saying, I am pretty sure that you belong to the land that produces herb. He's linking us back to the exact same analogy that he just used. You guys are with me? He's saying, I am confident that when it comes to you, you're actually part of the land that produces herbs that will receive a blessing from God and not part of the land that produces thorns and be cursed by God. And then he said, yes, and things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. What is he saying when he said, things that accompany salvation? He explained it in the verse that right after that, verse 10. Look at verse 10, it says, for God, for, again the word for, what does it mean? That verse 10 is explanation to what he just told us in verse 9. For God is not unjust to forget your work and the labor of your love, which you have shown toward his name. So that work, that labor of love that they have shown to God's name is the things that accompany salvation that he is confident about them. You guys are with me? He said, I'm confident about you. Yes, even when it comes to things accompany salvation, like your labor of love and the work that you have shown to God's name. You guys are with me? I, we have seen that. We have seen the things that accompany salvation being demonstrated in your own life. That's why we're confident that your salvation is sure. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is this. Your salvation was not based on words alone, and you told me that you're saved, I have seen the radical transformation that have taken place in your lives and how you have started exercising work and labor of love toward the name of God when you have become Christian. You guys are with me? In other words, the author of Hebrews is telling us here is this. Salvation is not just words alone. Amen? You don't say, hey, I commit my life to Christ and go live the exact same life that you have been living and say I'm a Christian. He says, 
saying, no, salvation that justifies you before the holy and the righteous God also changes your heart from the inside and you become a brand new creation. And I have witnessed that, the author of Hebrews says, when it comes to you. I have seen with my own eyes the things that accompany salvation. You guys are with me? Amen? And then he said, though we speak in this manner. What is he talking about? He's talking about the harsh words that he just used in verses 4 and 6. How even though you know God and you choose apostasy, it is impossible to renew. He said, these are hard words, I know. And though I speak in this manner, when it comes to you, I know that you're saved because I have seen that firsthand the evidence of your salvation is, and how your lives have been radically changed. Amen? And then again, he's elaborating in that in verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and the labor of your love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and uh, do minister. Amen? Let's look at the first part. For God is not unjust to forget your work and the labor of your love. What is he talking about? Why is he even bringing the justice of God here? I think because the people, the readers of that time, remember they were facing persecution. And it seems like they tried to stick with God. They tried to do the right thing. They showed evidence that they love God and endure persecution to some level. And then as time goes by, it seems like the, the, the persecution is not lighting up. All what they're getting is more hardship. And they might have start questioning the justice of God. Where is God in this? How come he's not relieving us in spite of all our faithfulness to him? So here he's reminding them to keep on persevering and keep on enduring. He's saying it might appear that God is unjust because you still are being persecuted. But God is not truly unjust. For God is not unjust to forget what you have done toward his name and the day will come he says that you will receive the just reward from the Lord amen, amen. for God is not unjust to forget that your work and the labor of love which you have shown toward his name what is he talking about here he probably talks about stuff that he talks about later on in chapter 10 verse 32 to 34 he told them this later on in the epistle but recall the former days, right? He's encouraging them and he's saying, recall the former days. Remember when you got saved the first time. Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you were enlightened, you endured a great struggle with suffering, partially while you were made spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulation. These people went through some Tough stuff. You guys are with me? They were not just like flakes, but still, he warned them very sternly. He said, partially while you were made uh, a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulation, and partially while you have become companions of those who were, were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring position for yourself in heaven. Amen? So he's reminding them what they have already endured, and not that they only endured persecution, but they also were companions, had compassion, and ministered to the saints who endured persecution. Amen? And that's what he's kind of, I think, believe, uh, he's, he's mentioning here in chapter 6. He's saying, you have shown labor of love toward God in that you have ministered to the saints. 
he's probably referring to how they had compassion and how they were companions of those who were once persecuted in the past. Even the author himself, he was in chains and they sympathized with him and they helped him out. Amen? So he's saying here, we know that you have shown the evidence of your salvation, the things that accompany salvation. What are they? It's the work and the labor of love that you have shown toward the name of God in that you have ministered to the saints, right? And not only ministered in the former days, as he called it in, in chapter 10, but you continue to minister, right? So this is an ongoing thing that even up till the moment that the author of Hebrews wrote that book to them, they were still showing that they are ministering to the saints. Amen? So it seems like these people have weakness in some areas, but some have some strength in some other areas. Amen? On one hand, it shows sluggish and immaturity, and that's what concerned the author of Hebrews, and he wanted to sternly, to sternly warn them so they will never consider going back to Judaism, but on the other hand, it seems like they endured persecution. They had sympathy on the saints, and they still exhibit the same qualities that shows that you have received salvation from the inside. Amen? Now he says this, you, the labor of love, the, your work and the labor of love, which you have shown in his name or toward God's name, how? In that you have ministered to the saints and you continue to minister. Amen? I don't know about you, this part convicted me. Because we live in a time and an age where some of the saints, I tell you, they don't act very saintly. Amen? And you have um, saints tearing into saints. Um, sometimes when I go and meet with other pastors in district conference or something like that, and I hear, I hear horror stories about the board that doesn't like the pastor and how churches split because of the color of the carpet. And you have all sorts of messed up behavior inside the church. Amen? But this is not what the author of Hebrews is saying here. The author of Hebrews is saying that you show love to the name of God, to the name of Jesus. How? By ministering to the saints. Amen? I don't know about you, but if you want to show Jesus that you love him, you need to minister to the saints. Amen? You don't need to tear into the saints. You need to serve the saints. Amen? This is how you show Jesus that you love him. And I know this, this has personally convicted me. And yes, um, yes, we need to change. We need to behave in a manner that shows love to the name of Christ. Amen? Jesus himself, the fact that when you minister to the, to the saints of God, in the same way, you're ministering to the God of the saints. You guys are with me? When you minister to the saints of God, you minister to the God of the saints. Jesus himself said something among these lines in, in Matthew 25, 40. He's, when he stands on the day of judgment and he's separating the goats from the sheep and he says this, and the king shall answer and say to them, verily I say to you, and as much as you have done it unto one of the least of my brethren, that's the saints, right? Ye have done it unto me. You guys see that? When you serve the saints, you serve Jesus. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. You show love toward the name of God by ministering to the saints. Amen? And the opposite is also true. When you mistreat the saints, you mistreat Jesus himself. We have an example of that when, when Jesus appeared to, uh, to Saul when he was going to persecute the church. And what does Jesus appear to him and say in Acts 9 verse 4? He say, Saul, why do you persecute my church? Right? No, he doesn't say that. 
It doesn't say why you're persecuting the saints. It doesn't say why you're persecuting my church. It says, so why are you persecuting me? It's like when you heard the saints, you heard Jesus. When you minister to the saints, you minister to Jesus. Amen? You got to make up your mind which camp you're going to be on. Amen? Let's not tear into the saints. Let's love and serve the saints. Sometimes, some saints don't deserve it, but you do what you're supposed to. Amen? You do it not because of them, not for them. You do it to the name of Christ. Amen? All right, verse 11 and verse 12. And we desire that each one of us show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish by imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here's, he says in verse 11, we desire that each one of you, right? This is a pattern for the author of Hebrews. Yes, he speaks to the church as a group, but he admonished them and speak to them individually as well. You guys are with me? Many times. It was just one example. Remember, he said in chapter 3 that none of us, none of you will have an evil heart in the falling away from the living God or departing from the living God. You guys are with me? None of you. And over and over again, even though he speaks to the church as a group, yet he admonished them individually, saying, you individually sh sh should be walking with Christ. You individually should show him the, the commitment. You individually should show the exact same diligence that you have shown in the former days. You guys are with me? So take that to yourself as well. This book is written for you individually. And it is written for us as a church as well. Amen? And then he says this. I want you to show the exact same diligence to the end. It, it's, this is hard in Greek. And the meaning that he's trying to say is difficult to understand. It appears to me that he's trying to say something to these lines. It might be wrong, but this is how I take it. It says this. That you would show the exact same diligence to the end which is the full assurance of your hope. That's, it seems like what he's trying to say. Are you guys with me? You show the exact same diligence that you have shown in the former days when you accepted with joy the plundering of your goods and the persecution, that exact same determination, exact same diligence that you have shown in the past. I want you to keep it up all the way till the end. Amen? And what's going to happen in the end? You're going to receive the fullness of the things that you're now hoping for. That's, I think, what he's trying to tell us. Amen? He's saying, now you're hoping for, for, for the eternal um, presence with God. Now you're hoping for this persecution to be relieved. And God will grant you the fullness of that hope at the end. But till that happens, you need to keep up the exact same level of diligence that you have shown in the early days. Amen? And then it says this. Um, Same level of diligence that you have shown uh, till the end. And verse 12 now, remember that warning started from chapter 5, verse 11. And now this warning is coming to an end in verse 12. The, the, the next part, the rest of chapter 6, he's actually going to use an example of to encourage them still to walk with Christ. I believe it still belongs to that warning uh, passage. But he, he's concluding for the most part his warning, and he's saying this, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen? Mm -hmm. Now here is the conclusion of why he went on that warning from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way to here, because he wants them not to be sluggish. Amen? How they cannot be sluggish? 
He explained that in verse 11 by showing the exact same diligence that they have shown in the end. Amen? He's saying, keep it up the exact same way you have shown love to God in the way you ministered and continue to minister to the saints. Keep it up the same level of commitment that you have shown to Christ. When you keep that all the way till the end, this way you're not going to become sluggish. Amen? And that is the word sluggish, the exact same word that he used to start the warning in chapter 5, verse 11, when he said, you need milk, you need baby food, because you have become sluggish in your hearing. You don't hear very well anymore. Amen? It's the exact same word that he started the warning with, he's closing the warning with, and he's saying, do not become sluggish. Keep up the diligence that you have shown in the former days. Amen? And also another way of not to be sluggish, not just by keeping the diligence, but also by imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Amen? Now, when he says, through faith and patience inherit the promises, he's not introducing new theology for us that you need to bring patient into your salvation. You guys are with me? It is not that salvation now is by faith and patience. That you have to have faith and you also need to work on your patience. This is how you be saved. You guys are with me? He's not saying that. On the other hand, it seems that he's defining faith as, in, as defining patience as enduring faith. You guys are with me? He's defining patience as enduring faith. He's saying that when you have continual faith in God, and in spite of the persecution that you're facing, and in spite of everything that is hard coming your way, that we're going to make you inherit the promise. Amen? So he says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherited that promise. By using that phrase here, he's setting us up for next week. When he, from chapter 6, verse 13, all the way till the end, he talked about the example of Abraham whom God has promised a son, right? And how did Abraham inherit that promise of God? He trusted God, but he also was patient. He endured, right? And because of faith and patience, Abraham inherited the promise. We're going to talk about that next week. But he's here setting up the stage for us to what he's going to be talking about uh, in the, for the rest of the chapter. You guys are with me? Faith and Patience, because faith is an endure, patience is an enduring faith. If you don't have an enduring faith, you don't have faith. You guys are with me? Let's close our eyes and pray.